Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sex, Love, and Addiction. You know who this is, and I've got a really special guest for you here today. Let me talk to you about her. Charlene Benson is a licensed professional counselor and has kept a private counseling and coaching practice in Westminster, Colorado, where she specializes in improving relationships, healing from trauma, addressing addictions, and moving forward. She is a certified sex addiction therapist. I know all about that. And a certified multiple addictions therapist. As she was also a sign language interpreter, she serves the deaf population as well, which is so amazing. And I have to say, just as an aside, I might end up flying you here sometime to LA, Charlene, to do therapy for me when I have deaf couples, because it's such a challenge. Let me tell you say more about her. Charlene has been using the ditch people model. I love that. Like put them in the ditch or throw them in the ditch or just ditch them. The ditch people model for more than a decade, which is explained in her recently published book, Unstuck. Move from powerless to empowered in your relationships. The book reveals human tendencies to default to extreme reactions uh, when we are under stress or feeling frightened, and it helps us identify how that happens and how we can find our way out. She has presented internationally all over the world, just like me, Thailand, Kenya, Cyprus, all these wonderful places, and has a wonderful personal life, which I won't tell you about, but she can be found in Colorado, and later on, we'll talk about how to find her online. Charlene, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to you on the phone. It's been a long time since I've actually seen you, I think, when, at the last uh, ITAP conference. Yes, I get around a lot. I've been in Australia and Singapore and all kinds of places because, as you may know, we have a diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior in most of the world, except for the United States and Canada. So I've been called to teach about those things around the globe and different places. So it's kind of cool. And I'm really grateful to travel and sort of spread the word of healing. But let's talk about you. Um, you wrote a book, and it's a really good one, and it's really helpful. So tell me, first of all, what motivated you? L- let me say this. I've written books, a bunch of them. It takes a year or two out of your life. It is not a fun exercise, and you will never make a lot of money from it. So all of that being given, what motivated you to want to take this time out of your life to write this book? Well, I had never considered myself an author, but I want to impact the world in a positive way. And in 2014, I created a vision board and put on it that I wanted to impact the world. And I put on it that I wanted to travel and that I wanted to write this book. So I saw the book as a vehicle for being able to do that. And I was using these 
you know, just the idea sprang into my head early on as a counselor to start using this metaphor of a being stuck in a ditch for where couples were. And so over the last seven, eight years, this model just kind of morphed. I kept being surprised myself at things I discovered as I was using this model. So I feel in a way that it was revealed to me because I was being surprised by what I was learning or the things that as I was talking to clients about it. Well, I think maybe I can just say to everybody who's listening that therapists, you know, if we're good therapists, we're always learning from you guys. Hopefully we're one step ahead of you in the work you're actually working on, but we're always listening for patterns and, and, and things that are familiar to us from other clients and experiences in the world. And sometimes if we're really motivated, we will write it down. And that's what you've done. Exactly. Yes. So I was using this, I would draw it out on my whiteboard. I have a whiteboard in my office and I would draw out being others focused and me focused. And so much of this came out of my own personal experience of how I perceived my relationship with my spouse and how I felt stuck. And so this is as much a journey out of my own ditch as it is sharing the principles that I learned and the pathway to crawling out of the ditch. Well, second note to everyone who's listening, um, this is also parting being a therapist, is every therapist I've ever met is also on their own journey to discover their own reality about themselves. And we choose this psychological journey to find ourselves, but in the process, we end up helping a lot of you. And um, again, you were right on point with <laughs> being one of us. So tell us more. Um, what did you find? Well, first of all, is this published? Is this out? It is published. It came out October 1st, officially on Amazon, November 5th. Uh, I did a book signing in Nashville, Tennessee at an AACC conference and was able to distribute 109 copies to counselors, pastors, and lay people from all over the U.S. and different parts of the world as well. So is Unstuck really mostly, in essence, about couples dealing with betrayal and, and specifically romantic betrayal, or is there more there? This is basically for every relationship, whether it's a coworker, boss, mm. a coworker, coworkers, or boss, employee, or spousal relationship, or parent, child, or child, parent. You know, so it's. I found it to be a pattern that's accurate for every relationship. We tend to go from what we don't know how to balance what I want and what you want at the same time, we will default to our pre-programmed pattern of either giving up what I want so that I can make other people happy or being the one that leads the way and says, let's do this. It's interesting you say this because I'm thinking about my marriage a little bit and thinking about how some of the give and take in the marriage and the relationship and really relating to the fact, and I think your listeners might too, they might not think of it this way, but I know that when I'm in a really good place and feeling strong and my spouse is eh, in a crappy mood and just angry at the world and needful, I can be there. We're a good couple. I can stand up and show up for him anytime when I'm in a good place. And when he's in a good place and I come home and I'm in a crappy and I'm tired and I'm annoyed and you know he can support me, but... And especially, I have to say, with two men, as you can imagine, if any ladies out there who take care of us guys, two men together. So when we're both in a bad place, it's very difficult. It ends up in fighting and disagreements because each one of us is trying to pull something out of the other for themselves that neither one of us has to give. And even in a non-crisis situation, when both members of a couple are very needful, I wouldn't necessarily use the word things they want, but things they need, um, and neither one can get it, we kinda, both tend to turn into little kids and having a tantrum. And that, I think, is part of what you're talking about. 
That's exactly right. And it, it's behaviors that we default to that are quite predictable. We are people pleasers or we uh, get angry. So on the me focus side, we will get angry, demanding. We resort to demeaning. We have expectations and then we're disappointed. On the opposite extreme, in the other's focus, when we're in that ditch, is we give up what we want. We shut down. We don't speak up and say what we want. We have difficulty expressing what we think and feel because the me-focused person is very vocal about what they're thinking and feeling in that moment. It's funny. Um, I, I'm listening to you. I'm thinking, of course. And part of it is that the people, the couples are in different place. And I, I, I don't mean in a different place, like in different rooms. But if I'm really, really emotionally upset and you are really kind of trying to protect yourself or defend yourself or not feel so bad, you're going to be more thinking. You're going to be more thinking, how can I get this person less upset? How can I calm them down? How can I? And when one person is deeply emotional and the other person is all kind of thinking, I'm thinking that doesn't go so well. It doesn't. And so what we end up is with these patterns that end up frustrating one another. And both all of these behaviors are driven out of fear because we're both wanting to be accepted and loved for who we are. Mm -hmm. But we're not experiencing that from the other person in the moment. And so we resort to these behaviors that are driven out of fear and on, on another's focused person who's our deepest fear, I discovered after I've been using this model for quite some time, that our deepest fear is rejection. Abandonment and rejection. Aban and I would, add, I'm sorry, I have to say abandonment, but abandonment is rejection. So they're kind of the same. It's exactly right. Yeah, you, you nailed it. So the me-focused person ends up trying to protect themselves from feeling abandoned. And so they act in rejecting ways to protect themselves. The other's focused person is trying to protect themselves from rejection, and they act in abandoning ways. They'll leave the room, leave the, you shut down, shut up. Uh, and the me-focused person gets angrier and angrier because they're perceiving abandonment. But the other person is saying, I'm so hurt. I'm just so hurt that I don't want to be hurt anymore. And I have to get away from this pain is what the person, other person's right. Feeling. They're trying to protect themselves from the feeling of rejection that they, and both people have experienced either abandonment at the deepest root or rejection at the deepest root in childhood. And so it was something that came, you know, they grew up with that. And then they pull into their lives, a partner who's from the opposite extreme. And then you end up with a relationship either made in heaven or hell, depending on how well you're able to balance those things out most of the time. Those behaviors that are driven by fear are what keep our relationship unhappy. And so when we can find out what that fear is, and then we can name that fear and figure out what can I do to get rid of that fear, then we can switch from that reactionary behavior to a healthy, balanced behavior where I am able to think about me and you at the same time. You know, it's funny, I'm listening to you and thinking there's some comfort in a way in feeling bad sometimes. Sometimes I want to sit in my feeling awful for a while. I'm not ready to move out. I mean, I know for me, I'm thinking about a client I have who's really angry at his spouse. And he's basically said, I'm just not ready. I, I know that it's just about my anger and I know that I could be, but I'm not ready. I, I really not. So how do you 
speak to that part where, yes, you know that the person is all in a deeply emotional, upset place needs to, and I would never say this to them, but on some level, they need to calm down a little bit and think more clearly in the most basic sense. And the person who's just thinking, 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 they need to slow down, be more less defensive and be more connected to the person and the process so that they can find a path together. But sometimes people are just stuck and in the ditch. How do you, what do you do then? Like, I don't know if I want to forget. I don't know if I want to be kinder. I don't know if I want to be more warm. I don't know if I want to think this person in a kind way. What do you do when people are really stuck in that angry, sad place? What I do is help them to recognize that this is their own journey, that it's not about the other person, but it's something that they need, whether they stay with this person or not, these are things that would be helpful for them to shift and to change. And they have freedom to do that. I want to say something about that because you know, you probably know that I'm very anti-codependency. So it's very important for me to notice, and I want to say for me, that Charlene is not saying that you're inevitably going to pick a broken person and you better get used to it. And, you know, if you get healthier, you might find it healthier. But she, she, I think what she's saying is very much what I agree with, which is that if two broken people find each other, and they are likely to, then they can grow together. And they can actually become stronger as two people growing together than they might have ever been as two people who were troubled or challenged or just who they are separately. But here's the thing, and and Charlene, you know this, a two emotionally is never going to marry a nine because a two is going to look at that nine and say, oh my God, he or she is so boring. And a nine is never going to marry a two because they're going to look at that two and say, they're way too much drama. So we are, you're right, inevitably going to find someone who has some kind of balance and experience that mirrors our own in terms of connection, relationship, and intimacy. And that is the gift, right? That's, as you said, where all the loving honeymoon excitement can come from. But that's where also some of the hiding, the secrecy, and the angry sparks can show up as well. So let me ask you this. How do you help a couple understand... How do they move from a stuck place to a willingness place? Because sometimes that's the hardest part. So I think the very first thing is awareness. And I'm sure that you would agree with me there is that until we become aware of what's going on and what we're doing, we can't make any change. And so that's the first thing that I would do. And the second thing I would do is talk about the process of change. So there's two different ways I explain that process of change. Number one, huge change takes place in tiny little increments. And so to begin Looking at those tiny little increments instead of trying to look at that 180 degree change that we so certain we so want our spouse to change 180 degrees yesterday, but they can't any more than I can change 180 degrees even today. And so being able to have that help people to look for those tiny little changes. And then the second thing is recognize that when we gain new information, it's sort of like sideways bleachers, which I talk about in the book. <laughs> where we we come into the office with the sum total of what we know about a relationship and how to operate healthily in a relationship. And then in the office, we gain new information. But we walk out of the office and sometimes things get worse. And so helping couples understand that what's going on there is our brain has sort of got the scaffold set up of the all the knowledge that we had already gained. And so then it, when we get new information, it like has to take down all that scaffolding and figure out what about this new information just gets added to what we already knew. What gets deleted, what gets modified, and what stays the same. And so that, that speaks to the one-step 
forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, where it's a process. And so if people can understand it's a process. And then the third thing I would say is stop judging yourself for not being able to remember what you just learned in the office. And what does that mean? It means making a decision to not be hard on yourself and beat yourself up for still going back and doing the same old behavior that you did when you started going to therapy and that this may be weeks and months. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. This is a reason why I'm very opposed to codependency because I don't like people feeling that their reactions are necessarily wrong or bad or that there's something wrong with them for having them. I think what you're saying is so important is understand the reaction. Understand that, you know, maybe your dad went off and worked all the time and left your mom alone and she had a lot of feelings about it and you grow up in a house with a lot of missing dad feelings. And then maybe you have a spouse who starts going on the road and having an affair. Well, you not only have the feelings about the affair, but eventually you're going to come to learn therapy. It reminds you of what it was like to grow up as a kid and have dad go away all the time. And you have double feelings about it. But all of them are focused on the situation that you're in with your spouse until you have time to slow down and say, oh, I get it. Some of the intensity I'm feeling comes from what I grew up with. And some of it is about what I'm dealing with today. And it's what I'm dealing with today that triggered it all. But I need to sort out what belongs to what situation and and try to move forward in a more clear-headed way. Exactly. Yes. And so being able to understand how we're triggered and what those fears, and then naming those fears. What is that fear that's driving this behavior, that's that's driving both my current behavior and what's drove my feelings in the past? So what is that underneath all of that? And it's like, I'm afraid I'm not going to be loved, or I'm afraid this is always going to happen. And and so then the next step is going, okay, now that you've named that fear, what is it we can do to change that fear, to, to get rid of it, to, or to be able to address it, or to deal with it? What can you do to help yourself? Can you look to your higher power if you have one? What are that you can do that will change what that fear is is doing because as long as we allow that that fear to exist and drive that behavior we are going to continue to bring that problem react exactly so this is really you know I, i i hear the words and i understand completely as a therapist and i agree completely as a therapist and yet i keep coming back to the person who says to me and you expect me to feel bad about him after what he did to me And that's where everything stops with a lot of the people I work with. So tell me about that moment. First of all, I would validate the fact that, uh, you know, they're incredibly hurt and that they have been betrayed. And so helping them to look at those feelings and I wouldn't even, it's like, I'm not expecting my clients to have any kind of feelings other than the, the feelings that they're having. And then looking at the feelings that they're having, investigating the fears that are underneath them, helping them to heal from that, then helps them to come to their own decision about what has taken place. So Charlene, I have to ask this, and I know I'm pushing you, but I mean to, because I run into this. What happens with a client who says, look, I don't want to look at my stuff. I'm not interested in looking at my stuff. He or she did this to me. They went out and had an affair. They 
took all our money and spent it on drugs. They lost their job without telling me. And I don't want to feel sorry for them. And I don't want to look at my own stuff. Why should I have to look at me, which I completely understand, by the way, when they did something to me? And, and Charlene, this is to you from me. Um, in pro-dependence, I w- I'd never ask clients to look at their own histories in the beginning because I know that they are not ready to and they will rage at me for even asking why I am asking them about them when they've been in a crisis. So it may be that we have different stances or it could more be that it's a timing issue because I will ask people about their history if they're interested four to six months into a crisis. And it depends on the crisis. Look, if someone house, if someone's house burned down, that's a very neutral crisis. If someone's husband went and had an affair or wife left them for someone else, that's a whole different kind of crisis. So depending on the crisis, at least for me, it's important for me to absolutely make sure that that partner or that person has a period of understanding that what they're going through is perfectly normal, that regardless of their history, anybody would be feeling this way, and that there's their reactions and all of their reactions are perfectly normal, even if they're over the top. And if at some point they want to look at why or how it is that they seem so stuck, that's a great thing for us to talk about in a little while. But right now, while you're so angry and so hurt, I think we just need to sit with that. Right. And so if a client comes into me and they're super angry and super hurt. So I'm, I was thinking about this from looking at it from couples who are, have made some progress on their healing already. Yeah. I don't, I don't think just to say, Charlene, that most couples that are listening have made a lot of progress. I think most people are listening are like, oh my God, my spouse just betrayed me or, oh, you know, this, you know, and they're not thinking at all about empathy or compassion. They're thinking about, I want to kill this person. On the other hand, you know, the other people are listening or people who've acted out and are like, I don't get it. Like it was just an affair. Why does she want to kill me? And so, you know, this is sort of where most folks I think who are listening are, although there are certainly people who are further along the road. And you're right. For people further along the road, there is much more room to say, okay, yes, it happened to me. Yes, it was about me that in the sense that it happened in my relationship, but it isn't about me in terms of why this person did it or what it means to them or how it's affected me. That's more about the decision they made. And that's something that happened to me. It's not about something, anything I did. Because that what you're talking about, Shirley, I want to say is, is confusing for people. Because, and it's the reason I wrote Prodependence is that part of the underlying concept of codependency says there is something wrong with you for having picked this person. If you were healthy, this is what codependency says. And if I was a healthier person, I never would have picked this person. And as I get healthier, if they don't get healthier, then I'm not going to be with this person. And those concepts are just not things that I really believe in. So I do think we pick people for a reason and we have the opportunity to work our stuff out with them or not. But I, I don't think it's necessarily that I've done something wrong by picking this person and there's something wrong with me for picking them. In fact, I find partners often do that to themselves and that's kind of mean that they do that to themselves. Maybe that's what you mean by they have to be kinder to themselves about their reactions and their feelings. Right. I'm, I'm, and also about not judging themselves for where they're at in the moment so that they can move forward. So the what I was meaning- Like, why did I marry him? Or what's wrong with me for being, or I should have known better, or I should have seen this coming, or stuff like that? Uh, yeah, right. So I should have seen this coming. Well, how could you have possibly seen this? Right. If you, if you could have seen this coming, you would have right. seen it coming. Uh, right. But, you know, so, and so there's a negative judgment that that person has of themselves yes. uh, that they should have somehow been able to figure this out. And so they're beating themselves up for something that they had no power over. And so this whole journey of coming on, becoming unstuck is being able to sort out what do I have power over? What do I not have power over? What what can I do to make things different on my hand, on, on my part? Because I have no power over what somebody else does in my life. You know, I don't have any power over whether or not my mate 
uh, cheats on me. I don't have any power on whether, you know, somebody uh, yells at me, but if somebody's yelling at me, what can I do differently? Well, as children growing up, if we, if we've been in another's focus ditch, because that was the environment we found as children growing up, we found that that was the best way to navigate our home life as children. When we grow up and move away from the home, nobody tells us that now we can live by a different set of rules. And so we continue to live by the same rules that we live by as children. And the same thing was true as for the me focus stitch. It's like those were the that was the best way that we could handle our lives because we felt abandoned at some level. Our parents abandoned. Most of the time it's not intentional. Maybe there was you know, there could be a million different reasons why that happened, but we're hurt and angry about the fact that we've been abandoned. So, but Charlene, I have to say that a lot of clients say to me, you know, the past is the past. I mean, that was 25, 30 years ago. I've learned to love. I've had a lifetime from now. Since then, that was the first 10 years of my life. I've had 30 since then. Why do I keep having to look back at the past? I, I'm sort of tired of you therapists pushing me in that direction. Why can't I just look at the present? I, I don't know if you've had any folks like that. I certainly have. Occasionally, yes. I, I do have people that just want to look at the present going forward. The, the issue with that is the fact that we wake up every day with the sum total of our experience. Mm. So, Can you say that again? We wake up every day with, uh, say it again. The sum total of our past experiences. And all of that guides and influences us. But would you also say that maybe what happens in the first five, 10 years influences us in ways that sometimes we're unaware of, whereas something happened in 19, we'd be more aware of? Right. So an example would be, I lost my grandmother when I was 14 and I lost my brother, nine-year-old brother when I was 18. And I went to the funeral and like a good old German, cried a few tears and we went home and pretended like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we were all zombies in our house because we were all devastated by the loss. Mm. And so I put a concrete lid on those feelings and buried them mm -hmm. and went on my with my life for the next 30 years never going to counseling or seeking help to deal with it because mm -hmm. I thought I was over it. Sure. Everybody loses their grandma. It happens, right? Right. And, you know, a lot of people lose siblings. And mm -hmm. uh, But I did not know or understand. It was, and this is what I think is true about trauma in general, is it's not the experiences that we have that are so traumatic. It's what we tell ourselves is true that becomes so traumatic. It's how we interpret, how we, what we, how we decide what happens means. Exactly. It's the lies and the fears and the negative beliefs. So for example, some of you, I say that my, I had a mentally ill mother and she was in and out of hospitals most of my childhood. And I, I only know that at three years old when mommy was taken to the hospital in an ambulance and she was screaming in, the, in handcuffs because that's what they did to mentally ill people in the 60s. You know, I just thought, oh my God, have I been such a bad boy that mom won't stay that they're taking mom away because I've been such a bad boy. And I went and hid under a bed and all they told me was mom's sick. Why are you making these problems? And I thought, but don't you understand mom's sick because of me? That's what I thought. Cause I had a fight with my mom that morning and she walked away with me when I, for me, when I was three and I thought, and then the next thing I didn't see her for three months. And I thought I, I sent mom away and it's because, and so I lived with that shame and guilt. I was afraid to get angry or upset with my mom about anything for years. You think that's silly, but I learned that lesson so well. And the truth is the meaning I made out of it wasn't true. I was just a little kid. Yes. 
Yes. And did that go into your relationship? Right. And then I carry that meaning into adult life. So when a partner is out of town a day longer than they say they're going to be, or I feel like they're not being honest with me, I start jumping to conclusions and reading into things and doing all that stuff that is not necessarily based in reality. Right. This is, I want to read your book now. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. People have told me that it's in simple terms that they can understand and they can be able to sit back and look at all their relationships and we can sit and watch TV and see how this dynamic gets played out over and over and over again. And so when we can recognize that it's like, especially in the others focus, well, the truth is on both sides, in both ditches, we feel powerless. Every single one of them. Uh, behaviors is driven by a feeling of feeling fear of not being able to do anything different and feeling powerless. And so when we can recognize what our behaviors are, are try to become empowered. So the me focused people try to become empowered by using force or, you know, uh, trying to control external cir circumstances. Right. What came into my mind as I was listening to you was I was thinking about the men I've worked with who have read Out of the Doghouse, which is a book I wrote about men who cheat and what happens to their partners and what betrayal trauma is all about. And I have had men who were married for 30 years, got divorced over cheating, remarried, have been married 15 years, and they read this book and they say, oh my God, I don't didn't understand when I was 40 that I could have saved that marriage, that I could have made that relationship work, that I could have, I just didn't understand. I didn't have the skill set. And I think part of what you're talking about is gaining the skill set to understand what your reactions are and pay attention to them, but not necessarily live in them. Right. And be able to recognize what can I do to get to change it. To ground myself. And by the way, this is a lot of mindfulness, folks, and meditation. All that stuff is what Charlene, these are some of the ways that people calm themselves so they can get out of these reactive places. That's why you're hearing so much these days about mindfulness and meditation as a means of working in therapy. Right. And it's be becoming aware and recognize what is it that I'm doing that's not really serving me well. And then figuring out, okay, what is that fear that is driving it? Because a fear is connected to a lie. And so mm. when we have a fear, then we're living as though that lie is true. Okay. So now hold on a second. This one I got to break down. Okay. So a fear is connected to a lie. So let me try this one on. I've been married for 12 years and my spouse is now cheating on me and I found out about the affair and the word love was in the email and I'm afraid I'm going to get abandoned, left. I'm afraid I'm going to be penniless. I'm afraid there's no one going to be taking care of this family with me. Those seem like real fears. They are very real fears. So what's wh why are you telling me, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here, why are you telling me that my feelings aren't com are coming from a place other than what I'm dealing with? Look at what I'm dealing with. Yes. I mean, those are all very valid Every single fear you have is valid. The thing of it is, is that we can do something different than that, what, what that fear is telling us. Mm. So here's an example. So just talking about how lions hunt. Does the male lion ever catch the prey? I thought he's the one who goes after it. No, the, the females catch the prey. The females catch the prey. And they drop it in front of the male so he can eat first. Right, which is just crazy. But, um, but no, no, it's not crazy. There's a reason. The, the reason is, well, I, I'll let you say it. Go ahead. Yeah, no, you go ahead and tell me the reason. I think, well, I saw some lions in Africa, and I remember they told me this. It's the male is, he can eat first, so he gathers his strength, and he can protect the brood while they're eating, is I think the reason. Yeah, excellent. But uh, this is in the process of uh, how fear acts, So, and the metaphor of the lions. And so the females catch the prey, but 
all the ma- the male lion, what he does is roar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the male lion roars. What does the antelope or the gazelle, what do they do? Run. Run from the sound of the roar. Right. Into what? Oh, the lions who are waiting there to catch them. It's yeah. a trap. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's exactly what fear does. So when we experience a fear, we turn around and run, thinking that we're escaping what that fear is telling us. But what we end up doing is running right into the jaws of what that what we were perceiving that fear was protecting us from. I got to tell you guys, if you want good therapy, call Charlene Benson. I can already, I'm just, I don't know about you guys, but I'm listening to her and I'm thinking, and I often do this when I'm listening to a good speaker, a good therapist. I listen to them, but my own feelings and thoughts are coming up at the same time. And I'm thinking about people I'm angry at, people I've made decisions about not wanting to, I'm never going to talk to them again, or, you know, I'm really thinking about what is the fear underneath that keeps me from trying to make that work or trying to at least be pleasant or this. So I just want to say, I get that you're a good therapist because I know that if I'm having these thoughts or feelings as you're talking that others are too, they're going to have them when they read your books, they're going to have them when they engage with you. So Charlene Benson, how can people find you? They can find me on ditchpeople.com. That's- <laughs> wait, wait, I got to ask. It doesn't mean you're going to ditch the person. That's not really no, what you no, mean. There's right? only one chapter on the book in the book about ditching people and, and doing it in a more healthy way than we tend to do in America. But most of it is about us being stuck in a ditch. So that's where the ditch people thing comes from. So ditchpeople.com. Initially, I wanted my book to be called Ditch People, but my um, publishers thought it would be much more uh, relevant to call it Unstuck because uh, people could have the wrong connotation about ditch people. And on that website, they can drop you a note or find out more about the book or the theories that you're working in. Exactly. And they also could email me at cbensonbooks at gmail.com. I'm available on Amazon. They could download it on Kindle. I'm available through Goodreads and Barnes and Noble. Um, Can I just tell you something? I want to say, Charlene, you have done your job. You put up your board and said, I'm going to achieve this. And you wrote a book. And here we are talking to probably at the moment, I don't know, 120, 130,000 people. So congratulations. You now need a new vision board for next year. That's awesome. Well, I'm planning to write a study guide and translate this to sign language so that our deaf community can be able to have access it in their own language. Uh, So, and then probably write another book uh, down the road. I believe that because I always say I'm done and I'm never done. So we're probably a little bit alike. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so grateful to have a chance to talk to Charlene Benson, who wrote Unstuck, Move from Powerless to Empowered in Your Relationships. And I think she gets it. I think it's a title you might want to get. Thanks so much, Charlene. And thank you, everybody, for joining us at Sex, Love, and Addiction. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.